0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Jay Smooth, The Jimmy Dore Show, Lacey Green, The Young Turks, The Tom Hartman Program, The David Pakman Show, Activism from Best of the Left, Radio Dispatch, and Lexicon Valley. And for all the women in the audience, please get the permission of a male guardian before listening.
1: so I have a quick question. There's a lot of stuff in the news about women how women are treated right now and I want to contribute and be a part of the conversation but I'm having trouble keeping track does anyone have a complete up-to-date list of everything that women are supposed to do and not do so that they qualify for having their humanity respected? Like, okay, I know that if women want to feel safe in public, they're supposed to not dress a certain way. And then if they don't dress a certain way and they still get harassed and assaulted all the time, there are other things that they're doing or not doing to earn a right to safety. But what, what are those other things, I'm having trouble keeping track. I know that women are not supposed to sleep around all the time because then you're a slut and you're the reason men hate you. But you're also not supposed to turn down men's advances all the time or put them into friend zone because then you're a cold-hearted bitch and you're the reason men hate you. So, but then what are you supposed to? I don't how. I don't understand how that works. And then with a right to privacy, is the rule that if you want a right to privacy, you just don't have a private life or is it if you don't want things stolen don't have anything private that people might want to steal is it just don't use any of the technology that everyone uses to communicate nowadays which i'm I'm not clear on that there's just so many things to keep in your head at one time i want to do my part as a man and keep reminding women of the rules but there's just so many rules and we keep changing them and adding more it's hard to keep it all in your head i kind of feel like it would be easier if we had a list of rules for men to follow and we just passed that around amongst ourselves and it kind of feels like it would be less of a hassle like it could be a short list it could just have one thing on it it could say hello asshole women are human beings and we could take that and pass it around to each other every day. And even if we did need more follow-up on the specifics, that would be so much less paperwork. It seems like a much more streamlined workflow. But I'm sure there's a reason we're not doing that. So if someone could send me the most current, up-to-date list of all the freedoms and aspects of life women are expected to voluntarily opt out of so they have a right to feel safe, and everything else that women are supposed to do and not do so that they qualify for being recognized as a human being. If someone could just send me the current list and a way to subscribe to automatic updates since we keep changing it. Um, I'll be glad to pass that along. If you want to
2: be my baby, you must follow the rules I make. If you want to be my baby, you must follow the rules I make. Because the things you're handing me a thing that I can't take. If you want to be my baby, you got to make a
3: For me, liberalism can be summed up in a few words. Don't be an asshole. (laughs) Or to put it another way, don't be George Will. Because this week, George F. Will, the F stands for hmm. George F. Will, the non-thinking man's thinker, wrote in the Washington Post... In his own column about what he calls the the quote supposed epidemic of rape on college campuses, end quote. In it, he accuses female students of seeking the quote coveted status of victimhood, because it confers privileges. That's right. It. This is all true. <laughs> George Will's argument is that victims. Proliferate because of survivor privileges. Jesus. <laughs> the female students will lie about sexual assaults because they want to be part of the coveted rape club <laughs> <laughs> with all the perks you get from having a rape club membership. Mm. <laughs> half off your next rape. Half off. (laughs) We know this to be true because on campuses you can see long lines of women waiting to get their goodie bags for reporting rapes. The question George Will doesn't answer is what exactly are the privileges for surviving a rape? (laughs) Spending an evening with a rape kit? The humiliation of Uh. making your private life public in order to get justice? and the bonus of esteem-crushing shame and losing trust and feelings of fear and anxiety that will follow a rape victim for the rest of their lives. Mm. In typical Republican derangement, he puts the ultimate blame on Obama and something he calls progressivism. (laughs) (laughs) He throws around numbers to show that reported sexual assaults at colleges are nothing to be alarmed about. And what George Will doesn't realize is that sexual assault is underreported because, well, there's people like George Will in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Most disturbing, George Will describes in detail an actual rape where a female student is forced into non-consensual sex with a former partner. He mockingly calls her a quote-unquote sexual assault victim. Because she filed a report six weeks after the incident, and the Obama administration will be, quote, riding to the rescue of people like her. He asserts that non consensual sex is merely a product of the hookup culture on college campuses. And who would know better about the hookup culture on college campuses than George F. Will? George Will, the only man who combs his actual hair to look like a toupee <laughs> and has all the sexual appeal of Abe Vagoda. <laughs> Abe Vagoda played fish. <laughs> you know, I felt like I deserved survivor privileges for just reading that fucking column. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. What George Will wrote in his column is odious and disgusting, you know, exactly like every other column George Will has ever written. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: For those who might be unfamiliar with George Will, he's one of the most respected and influential intellects on the right. When he isn't waxing tediously about baseball, he disdains the left's bleeding heart while celebrating the right's lack of heart. Looking like a cross between Professor Bunsen Honeydew (laughs) and Beaker, George Will has maintained an impressive 40-year career of getting everything wrong. In his writing, using turns of phrase stolen from H.L. Mencken, he grumpily sneers at every minor progress that American society has made over the decades. On the fast-moving road of history, he insists on driving on the wrong side. George Will oppose the Civil Rights Amendment. He's opposed a minimum wage. He believes that money in politics should be unlimited. He considers climate science a big conspiracy. <laughs> he applauds health companies that refuse treatment for HIV or AIDS. He's against Social Security and Medicare. He supported the war in Iraq. Until it became so unpopular, he changed his position. He's also against industrial regulations, affirmative action, Roe versus Wade, blue jeans, weekends, comfortable (laughs) furniture, rescue dogs, the smiles of newborn babies, dessert after dinner, kids playing on his lawn, and happiness. (laughs) George is a man of personal integrity and honesty. His wife was Bob Dole's communications director, and she was a consultant and speechwriter for Rick Perry and Michelle Bachmann's presidential campaigns. All that time, George remained a political commentator for the media, never disclosing his conflict of interest. He recently became employed at Fox News, filling the void of muttering supercilious <laughs> dork who also serves as public intellectual for the frat boy date rapists. <laughs> An inspiration to many professional Republicans, George Will has spawned armies of young, mini George Wills running around Washington think tanks. Among the children of the bow tie are Tucker Carlson, <laughs> Ben Shapiro, and Rich Lowry, douchebags who believe it is the height of cleverness to defend stupidity, particularly if stupidity is paying enough. <laughs> George Will's article about sexual assault and survivor privilege was greeted with repulsion, a response that isn't surprising if you're a human being with a basic sense of decency, which the editors of the Washington Post apparently do not have. Because the following day, the newspaper doubled down on blaming the victims with an article entitled, One Way to End Violence Against Women? Stop Taking Lovers and Get Married. Again, it's the female's fault that she's the victim of violence because she's not married. This ignores the basic fact that women in our society face violence not from walking down the street, but from inside their home. You know, I'm starting to think that right-wingers might have issues with women. (laughs) (laughs) You know, many people are calling for the Washington Post to fire George Will. Sadly, in our media world, George Will will not be punished for this column, but rewarded with bonuses in his paycheck. And his editor will get a raise in salary for the traffic generated by his trolling of rape victims. So no matter how many times people say no, George Will still thinks they mean yes. Besides, (laughs) Besides, <laughs> if he was fired, I bet he'd only play the victim card anyway.
4: Somebody tell me what to do With his pocket full of dough Should I go pay my rent Or spend it on some hoe? I won't ask for nothing, baby And nothing's all I want to be Can't you see Accept the devil as my savior And take me some time off for bed
5: You didn't want your photos stolen, you shouldn't have taken them. What was she thinking going out dressed like that? She could have left, but she didn't. It's her own fault she has a black eye now. I mean, let's be honest, she was kind of asking for it, getting that drunk. Oh, hold up just a hot minute. What are you even saying right now? Babes, there are a few things that hurt my soul so much as a little thing called victim blaming. I'm going to be talking about sex crimes in this video, but victim blaming has all kinds of applications. The mentality is that by engaging in certain behaviors, they ask for it to happen. Common blameworthy offenses include going out at night, taking nude photos, wearing tight clothing, short skirts, being promiscuous, getting drunk, notice anything thing about that list? Yeah, all those things that people claim are asking for it are actually rights and freedoms that every human being is entitled to. And when I say human, I do include women in that group. This is how bizarre victim blaming sounds to me. Your identity was stolen? Why were you using a credit card? If you had used cash, this never would have happened. They punched you in the face? Where was your protective helmet? You were mugged? What were you wearing? A suit? (sighs) Everyone's trying to make money. You don't have to flaunt the fact that you have some. It's basically asking them to steal from you. Okay, enough bad acting. Do you get my drift? The problem with blaming the victim is that it's the predator that caused the crime, not the victim or their clothing or their pictures. Fun fact, actually, it's not that fun. Crimes happen when perpetrators choose to violate someone. Rape, sexual assault, theft, harassment, non-consensual distribution of sexual photos. Those are all decisions that someone made to violate another person. There are five big problems with blaming the victims of sex crimes. First and foremost, and what I feel should be the most obvious, is that it protects sexual predators. Why do we do that so much? Sometimes I hear people say things like, men rape people. That's the way it is. And then I start backing away very slowly. That's also super degrading. Most men are good people, and those that aren't, choose not to be. When we say absurd things like, men can't control themselves, it enables those who are choosing to crimes. They know they'll be dismissed, coddled, protected. They won't be held accountable. That's got to change. Number two, this is how, instead of preventing crime, victim blaming actually invites more crime. Number three, victim blaming makes it hard for justice to be served. Those real-life attitudes are in Congress. They're in police forces. They're splattered across the media. They're bearing down on the brave survivor who's decided to seek justice when the cross examiner asks her how short her skirt was. Number four before. In the context of sex crimes, victim blaming often fuels misogyny. Sometimes I hear people talk about how she needs to face the consequences for her actions. In this bizarre mindset, violation is framed as a deserved punishment, usually for a woman who's stepped out of line. In this way, victim blaming creates this never-ending list of rules that women are supposed to abide by in order to have their humanity respected. I mean, shit, we're taught from the time that we're little girls to fear men's attacks if we do something wrong. Like, how sick is that? And why are we so quick to defend men's freedom, including the freedom to commit crimes, while handing women a long list of restrictions on our everyday lives? Lastly, number five, when we live in this culture that's hell-bent on blaming the victim, it should come as no surprise that the victims blame themselves too. There's a whole series of mental gymnastics that rape survivors go through. What did I do wrong? How could I have prevented this from happening to me? The reality is, they did nothing wrong. The predator was wrong. Men and children are raped as well. Were they really asking for it by dressing slutty? I don't think so. This re-victimizes them and it creates a stigma that makes it so hard to pursue justice because they don't think they deserve it. And they know the world doesn't think they deserve justice either. I just wanted to say to all my babes out there, if you were assaulted, it was absolutely not your fault. If you were raped, it was not your fault. There was nothing that you did to invite that. If you had photos stolen, photos of you distributed, it wasn't your fault. You have a right to be sexual with your partner in ways that you consent to and no more than that. If you were harassed by someone, it's not your fault. If you were abused by someone, it's not your fault. You have a right to safety and respect no matter what. Every time I see someone blame the victim, it just eats me up inside. You deserve so much better.
0: As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently-owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at BestOfLeft.com to shop at just one of the major companies with the insatiable profit incentive to help perpetuate the destructive paradigm of overconsumption and exploitative capital Better yet, go ahead and click through to the Amazon site that serves your country just once, and then bookmark it to use every time you shop, which should be as rarely as possible. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal, it will cost you nothing extra, but 7-8% to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumerism altogether, or at least consuming in a subversive way.
6: is always looking out for women who want to be successful in businesses who want to be career women so they decided to create this segment called girls gone mild where they're giving women advice on how to succeed in their careers and of course it's absolutely awesome let's go to the first video
4: so when it comes to women you have some do's and don'ts some of the do's wear simple statement clothes well cut jeans with a colorful top
2: now i never thought you should
7: wear jeans to start, with,
2: But on Wall Street, you know, obviously, a well-cut skirt, you know, that fabulous shift dress, you know, that's the way to go.
7: That's but a woman using her asset.
2: Exactly. Oh. So,
6: Okay, I actually don't think that video is the worst of their conversation. I think that was actually the mildest part of their Girls Gone Mild segment. Because it's true, the same goes for men. You want to be presentable when you go to work. But when he added the, you want to use your... Assets. I mean, it's basically saying, you know, you better look foin in the workplace because if you do, you might get that promotion, girl, get it.
4: Well, that's what I, uh, you know, went ugh to. Because, look, that's a perfectly fine joke. That's the kind of joke I might make. But in the context of telling women how to dress at work, like if you're telling them, hey, let me see your ass because that might help you at your job, especially if you're a guy, it's not the direction I would have gone in. But as Anna said, they're just warming up.
6: They're just warming up. All right. So let's go to the next video where they talk about, uh, how women should really focus on using their minds. Take a look. Appearance comes in a distant third. You know,
2: your, uh, workwear needs to make you feel invincible, not vulnerable. So it's yeah, a tool. Yes. Make you, make you feel good for sure, but exactly. they can come under fire for it too. Focusing too much on looks, people say that, that women shouldn't be so focused about what we look like and what we're wearing, yes. but what, you know, what our mind can do, exactly. what our voice can do.
6: Yeah, so don't care too much about the way you look. I just find it a little ironic that that's coming from someone who's wearing the shortest skirt possible on a cable news network. Well,
4: as we've said before, there was an insider called The Mole, he called himself The Mole, that wrote a book about uh, Fox News. He was a producer there for a long time. And they literally say at the sexual harassment things, no, 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 your boss can tell you Mm
6: -hmm. that
4: you must wear skirts on air. We need to see your legs. Yeah. Okay. Real female empowerment there.
6: Yeah, and so far, the majority of the conversation is focused or centered around the way the woman looks as opposed to, hey, you need to be more assertive, you need to be uh, more open-minded to different ideas, take a leadership role. I mean, there are all these like little things that you can pinpoint that could actually help you do better in the workplace. But Fox is actually against that. And the guests that they had on to talk about this, is kind of against that as well. In fact, the woman should not be dominant in the workplace. Take a look at the last video.
3: Also, a little thing that you think is important is your presentation and your voice. Keep it low, don't speak loud.
6: Right. Do you know, under stress. For women. Well, men too, I think. Okay, so I think that that's hilarious. They basically say that women should not talk so much. Uh, Later in the segment, they're like, don't talk too much, don't be too loud, don't be dominant in, in the room, because that could come off as obnoxious. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what they were saying. And that's terrible advice. I mean, you're telling your female viewers that they need to shut up and not take a leadership role when they're at the workplace. Because, hey, that might be a little intimidating and that might be a little obnoxious for some people.
4: No, no, I love it. I mean, and especially because you got the two male anchors talking for most of the time, right? you got Kilmeade who says, keep it low, don't speak loud. That's a quote, right? Uh, And then Deucey adds it, for women, okay, let's be clear, men can say whatever the hell they want. Okay, but you ladies, shh. Okay, hush up already, www.com right? Uh, and then later in the segment, as Anna pointed out, Ducey comes back and says, that, they already talked about how you should be quiet, right, in terms of the decibel level. And Ducey adds, quote, don't talk too much. So when you're talking shush, and but mainly stop talking. Okay, now how are you supposed to get promotion? How are you supposed to get ahead in the world?
6: When you're quiet at the workplace. <laughs> you
4: don't say anything. Would they ever say this to a guy?
6: And They would never say to a guy. But what I always find really fascinating is whenever we talk about equal pay, one of the biggest arguments, and I actually think it's a legitimate argument, is that women are not as aggressive at negotiating their salary as men are. I think that's absolutely true, right? So conservatives will make that point all the time. They're like, well, of course they're not going to get paid equally. They're just not good at negotiating. They're not aggressive enough. And then you have segments like this where they're like, Just shut your mouth and take it. Okay? You're going to take whatever you're going to get. We don't want to hear your ideas. Don't be too loud. And as Jenk said, just shush. That's not going to get you far in the workplace.
4: I I, I mean, I literally can't believe this segment. It seems like it was done in the 1950s. Like, you know, you see those things uh, like the old advertisements for what a wife should do when a husband comes home and he's mm-hmm. tired from work. Yeah. Like, have all the food ready, make sure your makeup's ready and you're ready to get on your hands and knees and all these, like, insane things, yeah. right? Like, I mean, that would be lovely, okay? but it's not all a wife is supposed to. It's crazy, right? Yeah. So, in this case, they have two guys sitting there, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, they should shut the fuck up at work, right? I mean, like, we already let them into the workplace. I mean, look at our co-host here, lovely legs. Yeah. But bring it down, bring it down. But then I realized, well, their audience is from the
6: 1950s. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> so, so they're pandering they're, to their audience. They're pandering to their
4: audience. The uh, average age of a Fox News audience. Aren't they retired? Are they are re- Literally retired above the age of 70. Above the age of 70. So those 70-year-old geezers are going there and going, ah, that chick with the nice legs. Yeah, <laughs> just tell her to shut up. Yeah, yeah, get him. don't see him. tell me. I love these zany yeah. guys in the morning. <laughs> Oh, sometimes
2: I think back to when I was younger
8: Life was so much simpler then Dad would be up at dawn, he'd be watering the lawn Oh, maybe going fishing again Oh, and Mom would be fixing up something in the kitchen Fresh biscuits or hot apple pie And I'd spend all day long in the basement Torturing rats with a
3: hack and pulling the wings off of flies Those were
4: the good old days Those were the good old days The years go by, but the memories stay
8: And those
9: were the good
8: old days There's uh, an interesting article by Guy Sorman in the uh, French newspaper Le Monde that was Forwarded along to me uh, by a listener and uh, translated by his wife Raquel, and I don't I don't know if they want their last name used on the air, so I won't. But um, I also did a Google translation, uh, looked up the article and did a Google translation on it, and it's a pretty clean translation. And and I think Guy. Get started in the right place. I would like to take it a step beyond where he's going with it. But let me just share with you what what uh, Guy Sorman uh wrote in Lamam about uh he said uh, the the headline is the the, the main common thread among, among radical Muslim movements is women. And he asked the question, what is the link among Muslim movements as different as Hamas, Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, Boko Haram, the Taliban? and Isis. What do these groups have in common? He says all claim to be based on the Quran, but actually they have different interpretations, which is correct. They 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 and 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 in fact some of them are are Shia, some are Sunni, Sunni some are uh, you know, whatever. Uh he says they're all embedded in different cultures, correct. So what is it that's in common among them? He says, however, there's a link that unites them, which has less to do with religion or ideology and more of what one can call group psychoanalysis, hatred of women, misogyny. Now, I would add to this... See, he's looking at the Muslim movements, the fundamentalist Muslims. I would add to this the fundamentalist Christians. You've got fundamentalist Christians who want to... Uh, restrict a woman's right to choose to have an abortion, who want to, to uh, uh, who are fighting against equal pay laws for women, who basically are asserting that women should be silent, uh, that, it's, that they should be you know, forced motherhood, forced pregnancy. So I, I would say this is not just radical Islam, it's radical religion. He says, we do, we, we do not find the source of this hatred of women and their bodies in the Koran. The prophet Muhammad did not treat women with violence, nor with contempt. And his spouse, Khadijah, was at his side and took part in his conquests and his revelations. Something I did not know. Uh, Guy Sorman goes on to say, It is true that in the West there's always been discrimination against women, less than recent times, but they were not exterminated as they are today in Allah's name, as in Nigeria and Mount Sinjar in Iraq. We may read and reread the Quran, but we will not find the source of this hatred in it. And then he gets into Saeed Qutb. Saeed Qutb uh, died in 1966 at the hands of uh, Nasser, as I recall. Yeah, in fact, President uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser pushed uh, Islamists toward violence. Uh, Ketub, uh, there's uh, Adam Curtis, the British documentary filmmaker who makes films for BBC, uh, put together a video, and I think this one is called The Power of Nightmares. There's there's a couple of them that he did that that are just absolutely extraordinary, but he did he did one and you can find it on youtube and and in other places around the internet uh this 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 uh 3 hour series as i recall documentary about uh the origin of the muslim brotherhood and and at the same time the origin of the neoconservative movement in the united states and how this guy uh katib saeed Khatub Q-U-T-B, Ketub, um, came to the United States. He was in New York in, in 1949, and then he moved to uh, St. Louis, as I recall, and got his degree and then went back to Egypt. And he was horrified by what he saw here in the United States. He apparently had a bad romantic encounter in New York and decided women are awful, and then he went to St. Louis and he saw you know, middle-class households and green lawns, I mean, he actually went on tirade about lawns you know, wasted space and all this kind of stuff. Um, but basically, it was the decadence of the West that horrified him. And he went back to Egypt and, and founded the, the the Muslim Brotherhood. And a lot of these groups came out of this. But the point is that most of these hyper-fundamentalist groups are not just about their religion, And in some cases, kill the infidel or, you know, kill those who won't convert and all that kind of thing. They're not just about their religion. They are also about oppressing women. And to the extent that the Judeo-Christian ethic has informed the United States and the creation of the United States and the laws of the United States over all these years, i would submit to you that that has in in some very very significant ways influenced uh, influenced the, the the state of affairs as it were with regard to women in the united states and women around the world there's a piece that i had I don't think i closed it maybe i did Well, uh, it was there was a really interesting article titled the things that women can't couldn't do in the 1960s and i thought i had this up on my screen and i don't but you know the women the, the women in the united states were lacking rights it, 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 in in many cases well i'll i'll have to find it during the break and and, and bring it back to you but you know i, re- I wrote about this and actually In unequal protection about the situation with women in the United States up until fairly recently. This is, see, this is something that is like ancient male privilege, as it were. And women, hang on just a second here, here we go. 51 to 53. Gotta look at my own book. At the time of the formation of the United States and for the next basically 150 years, a married woman was not allowed to make out a will because I'm quoting myself here. This is my book on equal protection, which you can find for free online over at uh, truthout.org and, of course, from any bookstore. Um, a married woman was not legally allowed to make out a will because she could, was not legally allowed to own land or control anything else worthy of willing to another person. Any property a woman brought into the marriage became her husband's at the moment of marriage and would revert to her only if he died and she did not remarry. But even then, she would get only one-third of her husband's property, and what third that was and how she could use it were determined by a male court-appointed executor who would supervise her for the rest of her life or until she remarried, in which case she was handed off to another male. When a widow died the ex the the executor would either take the property for himself or decide to whom it could pass a woman had no say in the matter because she had no right to sign a, wo- a will she could not sue in a court of law except under the same weak procedures allowed for the mentally ill and children supervised by men if the man of a family household died the executor would decide who would raise the wife's children and in what religion she had no right to make those decisions if she was poor it was a virtual certainty that her children would be taken from her it was impossible in the United States of America for a married woman to have any legal responsibility for her children, control of her own property, buy or sell land, or even obtain an ordinary license.
2: Yeah, I know the view. I've known it from my youth, that I'm a second class citizen, we all know it's true.
0: You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com.
7: Let's talk more about the Hobby Lobby Supreme Court decision. Throughout the conversation around the Hobby Lobby decision, there's been opposition to birth control, to access to birth control from the religious right, premised on the idea that if you have access to birth control, you're essentially encouraging promiscuity and risky sexual behavior, and that that's a bad thing, and thus making birth control not available will help to limit that type of behavior. A lot of right-wing groups actually filed amicus briefs in favor of, of Hobby Lobby by arguing exactly that point saying women should not have should not be able to have consequence-free sex so where does this idea come from I initially was thinking well this does fit into this strict father morality idea right which is it should not be consequence-free birth control prevents strict father it's more of a nurturing father which is we have a method for you to be able to do what you want but not face the strict consequences. Conversely, not having birth control is a, it falls under strict father morality. If you have sex, you are more likely to get pregnant, and then you will have to have that baby, and you will be punished for your bad action. You're having sex that you didn't mean to be procreative. There's new research, though, which now has been published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior, which asked... People about the attitude towards whether or not women should be able to have consequence-free sex, or the way they put it was, "Is it okay for a man and a woman who recently met to just have sex with each other because they want to, not because they plan on being in a long-term relationship or want to have a child together?" That was kind of how that question was was couched. And um, is it? Uh, um, they, when, and what they found is that. Those who oppose this type of what what is designated as casual sex also tend to believe that women need a man to support them financially, right? So within this worldview, within the internal logic of this worldview, sex outside of a serious monogamous relationship is too risky because if women don't have paternity certainty, right, the knowledge that a particular man will help them financially with this child how would they know who they're going to rely on for the support of this child in the future so what the the researchers concluded is that there's this outdated view this outdated attitude really towards women's pregnancy risk and it's connected with financial need this is literally a retrograde view right the idea that Women can't be promiscuous or have consequence-free, non-procreative sex because there won't be a man in place to support that baby financially. It's an incredibly outdated view, but it perfectly explains why the religious right Hobby Lobby group would be opposed to birth control. Uh, I think it does. It's an interesting find, but uh, perhaps one that, I don't know, maybe we could have predicted it's not completely unpredictable. You're right. Because there's the, the kind of strict father morality part of it. But then there's also the question of what other, what other reasons are there for supporting this, this view? It's about legislating morality. And isn't it also about controlling women? It is. And it's really all rooted in, in, I believe, something religious. Uh, I
0: think that's, you know. That's the key thing here.
7: And take it a step further. I thought these conservatives w- were small government. Why is it the government's business now to regulate and manage promiscuity, casual sex versus serious long-term relationship sex? I thought small government didn't want that, right? I don't know. I guess when your religious text uh, dictates morality and you think that your government is uh, should be
10: subservient, said religious text, that, uh, I don't know, the two kind of have to mingle.
7: Hey people, hey people, there's a book you really ought to read sometime. God wrote it, and I quote it anytime that its purposes suit
3: mine. And I believe there'll come a judgment day, good lord,
9: bring me and God and Jesus will decide if we'll let you into heaven or damn you down to hell. So you might just want to stay
0: on my good side. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the Pregnant and Parenting Students' Access to Education Act. I hope we're making it clear today, not only the prevalence, but also the destructive nature of policing people's personal choices and actions. We've gone from victim-blaming sexual assault survivors to condescendingly telling women they need to shut up if they want to be taken seriously in the workplace, to the hugely structural oppressions against women put in place by religions, and now we find ourselves at one of the most personal forms of control some try to impose on women, restrictions to reproductive rights. For understandable reasons, the media and activism on This issue typically centers around abortion care. Reproductive justice advocates work tirelessly to break through that tunnel vision, broadening the narrative to remind us that supporting bodily autonomy includes more than helping people end unwanted pregnancies. Accidental pregnancy and parenthood are not punishment for sinful acts. Teen parents aren't getting what they deserve. While it's important to provide education and resources that help people prevent or end unwanted pregnancies, it's also important to provide support to those who choose to become parents who are all too often written off as lost causes. You probably don't even realize that there are laws to protect pregnant teens as those typically accidental pregnancies aren't giving much priority in public spaces or political platforms. It turns out, however, that pregnant teens are full, autonomous humans deserving of respect and support, rather than, as the Republican Party platform would have it... People whose bodies and lives must be regulated at every possible opportunity until giving birth, at which point they are set adrift with no societal support and as much scolding as possible. Title IX laws actually bolster constitutional protections and bodily autonomy guarantees, but most high school students aren't aware of their rights, can't vote for laws that protect them, and are heavily influenced by the messaging in their communities." As No Teen Shame co-founder Gloria Malone writes this week at RH Reality Check, pregnant teens often initially buy into the doomed depiction of young families in the media and shows like 16 and Pregnant. Malone candidly describes her experience this way, quote, when I became pregnant at 15, the adults in my life believed my life was over. In addition to explicitly stating this to me, they began to treat me differently and even stopped helping me look into colleges because they believed I would not finish high school. If my family and high school guidance counselor had responded to my decision to carry my pregnancy to term and parent my child in a more positive way from the get-go with tips on planning for my future and for my daughter's future, I may have experienced a more healthy and positive pregnancy. And so I asked, Ask, how are others preparing teens to live the life they want for themselves and their families? We can and must do so much better. Unquote. Healthy Teens Network and the National Women's Law Center are co-leading an effort which aims to take that advice and do better in practical and useful ways. The Pregnant and Parenting Students' Access to Education Act, sponsored in this legislative session by Senator Udall of New Mexico and Representative Polis of Colorado, would solidify the rights of teen parents and establish policies that provide concrete help teen parents should have the flexibility to finish school, pursue careers, and have healthy families. Let your representatives know during this election season and beyond that an issue affecting nearly 3 in 10 girls matters to you and should matter to them. Sign the letter at healthyteennetwork.org under the public policy tab and help make the legislation a priority after next month's election. Also, be sure to follow the No Teen Shame hashtag for other ways to get involved with ending stigma and building support for families. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If the full spectrum of reproductive issues and autonomy matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about this legislation and no teen shame via social media so that others in your network can join the effort to end stigma and build support for families too. we yeah. My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time, and the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my comments. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support.
2: So this document is from 1620, and it is called The Man Woman. Being a medicine to cure the cultish disease of the staggers and the masculine feminines of our times, expressed in brief declamation. Basically, they're like the women are too masculine. Just to find a couple of uh, a couple of parts here, and as somebody who is not used to reading texts from the 1600s, it is sometimes difficult to understand. I <laughs> will do my best to communicate with inflection. Since the days of Adam, women were never so masculine. Masculine in their genders and whole generations, from the mother to the youngest daughter. Masculine in number, from one to multitudes. Masculine in case, even from the head to the foot. Masculine (laughs) in mood, from bold speech to impudent action. And masculine in tense, for without redress, they were, are, and will be still most masculine, most mankind, and most monstrous. Are all the women then turned masculine? No, God forbid. There are a world full of holy thoughts, modest carriage, and severe chastity. To these, let me fall on my knees and say, You, oh, you women, you good women, you that are in the fullness of perfection, that are the crowns of nature's work, the compliments of men's excellences, and the seminaries of propagation. You maintain the world, support mankind, and give life to society. You, that armed with the infinite power of virtue, are castles impregnable, rivers unsailable, seas immovable, infinite treasures and invincible armies. That helpers most trusty. blah di blah blah Never perish, we like you women, good women, modest women, true women, ever young because ever virtuous, ever chaste, ever glorious. When I write of you, I will write with a golden pen on leaves of golden paper. Now Is I you write... You <laughs> write gold
9: on gold? <laughs>
2: Be able to see it. So he's when he's writing about the chaste and virtuous women, he says, "With you, I will write golden pen on golden leaves of golden paper. Now I write with a rough quill and black ink on iron sheets, the iron deeds of an iron generation."
9: Wow! Because of
2: all the masculinity.
9: That is serious talk. Yeah, that is real talk. Hashtag real talk.
2: <laughs> Hashtag real talk. <laughs> uh so just a little bit more here to try to get into how upset he is so the masculine women <laughs> you are my subject you have made admiration an ass and fooled him with a deformity never before dreamed of you've made yourself stranger than ever uh, stranger than things ever noah's ark unloaded or nile engendered for whom to name he that named all the things might study in age is to give you a right tribute you are not found in any antiquary study blah blah blah, you're total freaks, we can't explain where you've come from um uh, it it is of you, I entreat and of your monstrous deformity and just to for clarity, he's just talking about women who are like wearing like there's this panic about like women like wearing pants and stuff like <laughs> there's these photographs of like men becoming like feminized and and women becoming masculinized, so you know it's not clear that he's. Like I don't think he's talking about gender non-conforming women as much as he's just talking about women who aren't virtuous. Yeah, adult.
9: who won't sit down and shut up right. and keep their eyes down. Right. Th- those iron women.
2: Right. Yeah. Um. They've laid their bashfulness of your na- you've la- you've laid your bashfulness of your natures to gather impudence of harlots. They've buried silence to revive slander. Yeah, literally, they they won't shut up. <laughs> They're all things which. Uh, you should be, and nothing less than friends to virtue and goodness. Yeah. So basically, he's you are not behaving correctly. Let me see if there's any other things I can uh, grab real quick. Something about mermaids and mer monsters, and yeah. Then he starts talking about clothes, <laughs> skirts, and basically, again, this is this is not at all my area of study. But it, apparently, this was this big. This was all in response to having a woman in power, having Elizabeth in power. And as L- as Lack explained it, you know, could you imagine having a country that just hated women so much and really think that they they need to be virtuous and and silent, um,
9: and that they have no legal power right like yeah. no right to power right a, at all even in like a household right
2: right even to speak you yeah. know that is that 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 is horrifyingly masculine that even if they speak in their own homes and then all of a sudden one is running the country and at this at the time not just the country but like the global empire
9: yeah we were joking about how there would be the like the weekly pamphlet with Elizabeth having a giant heel and like crushing someone like that Time <laughs> yeah. magazine cover. Like,
2: yeah, exactly. When Hillary and the heel stepping on the little men, it's exactly <laughs> the same thing. It's just I, I'm gonna have to go through and find more because this is like a pretty lengthy text, and certainly there has to be a project that comes from this. And
9: then isn't there? A, there's a second one, right? That's the the one that's that's panicking about the men being too much like women
2: yeah there's so the it starts off by being like women, they're too much like men, and then yeah, so then the next one is the womanish man <laughs> <laughs> being an something to a late book an answer an, ans, that an, like ap- oh that's what that F yeah is being an answer <laughs> to a late book with any e, uh entitled. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is basi- basically, it's like this is the sequel to The Man Woman, The Womanish Man. And again, there's two pictures of like people kind of ambiguously gendered wearing like clothes they're not supposed to. Um, the Womanish Man. And then there's like a dialogue, maybe we can save for another day, we can act it out <laughs> between a man and a woman. And yeah, so basically they're like, not only are women too not silent enough but the men are becoming feminized, which is really, I mean, this, this is really not far from the panic that we are familiar with today about feminism.
9: Yeah, no, I mean, whenever, uh, like, there was that war on men, what's, what's her name? Susan Venker. Yeah, she's, she always talks about the, the feminization of, of men. Whenever you turn on Fox News, there's somebody talking about, this feminized, feminized culture. Bill, Bill O'Reilly's always talking about that. Oh, yeah. And there was somebody uh, else
2: recently who said that we live in a feminized culture, like a, a Republican strategist or something. Yeah.
9: That doesn't allow men to be men. Because
2: they're expected to care for the children. Oh, yeah. my God. Their penises are going to shrink. You
9: yeah, know? They're so tiny. They're going <laughs> to fall off. And then be crushed by a giant heel. heel.
2: Yeah. Yeah. This is just these giant high heels coming at men from every direction. The moral of the story being that this panic about you know what about the men's T E H M E N Z? That's been going on since at least 1620.
9: <laughs> <laughs> and then, as somebody we were sitting with at the the table said, you could go back to to Plato. I forget the the specific text, which I should know because I took a bunch of ancient philosophy uh, classes. But I, th- I I think that there are like there may be examples of Plato being like. You know, a sort of similar gender panic.
2: What about the men's? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And there's, I mean, there's so much in here. I'm gonna have to go through more of it. But uh, you, you recommended that potentially this can be a a project where I go through and find the gems and really, r- especially the ones that so closely parallel today's panic. It's, I mean, the ones
9: that could like fit in a tweet.
2: <laughs> right. What better way to undercut the kind of conservative? Well, you ask men to take care of the kids next thing you know they're all going to be i don't know i don't even know what the logical conclusion is we're not strong we can't go to war or whatever it is that they're afraid of they're going to be impotent
9: yeah i mean it's all basically impotence (laughs) that's like that's my sort of like freudian armchair psychoanalysis of this whole thing yeah if the the sort of proxy is a breakdown in society and the danger of that is a breakdown in national security because we couldn't go to war and that's just a sort of stand-in for i'm gonna be soft for the rest of my
2: life <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped the show. Thanks to Katie Klubusik. Thanks for the people who called in the voicemail line. Blah, blah, blah. That's what would normally go here. But this isn't really quite the end of the show yet. I have more for you. It's It's weird when you have a structure for a show and then you try to change it. It's like needlessly difficult to change it. So then it just becomes awkward for everyone. But – I have one more clip for you, but it needs an introduction. Uh, You know, today we've policed women's clothes and actions and workplace demeanor and rights to full equality and reproductive rights and gender conformity, and I didn't even have time to get to the study about how fat-shaming young girls actually backfires and only makes them fatter. So I have one more clip for you. You'll never guess we're now shaming the way people talk. This may not come as a surprise to many of you. This is a phenomenon that's sort of getting a little bit of uh, there's a little bit of buzz about this one. People have been talking about it for I mean I heard it uh, you know year and a half ago or so. And it's uh it's the phenomenon of young women Creaking in their voice. Oh, so terrible. Uh, we should shame them for how they're talking and, and say that what they're doing is inherently bad and the way we would prefer it is inherently better and so forth. So I have this, this one last clip for you guys. It's from Lexicon Valley where they have a discussion about this exact thing. It doesn't, it's not like a perfect best of a left clip because it's not people discussing the issue. It's actually one guy who is very much on the side of this is, a really terrible thing and one of the worst things to you know be inflicted on humanity in recent memory. And then the other is just sort of go along along for the ride and he's coming in with some statistics and some facts and some interesting details about it. So that's the introduction this one needs. And uh and then afterwards I'll let you know why all this came up in the first place.
10: Let's say that you're not attuned to this creaky sound and you feel that you can't hear it. You can actually see it. I record this podcast using a program called Pro Tools, which is software that represents our voices as a waveform in time. And I mentioned before that creaky voice is sometimes described as short pulses. That's, in fact, what it looks like as a waveform. If I elongate a vowel using my regular voice, you know, if I say, ah, you get a nice, even waveform. But if I do it in creaky voice, if I say, ah, the waveform exhibits, as it's called, both shimmer and jitter. In other words, irregularity in the amplitude of the wave and irregularity in the period of the wave. So listen again to two snippets of that Reese Witherspoon clip that I've looped. And if you pay close attention to the words sweater and disturbed you'll really hear the creek.
7: Truly heinous Angora sweater. Truly heinous Angora sweater. Truly heinous Angora sweater. It's seriously disturbed. It's seriously disturbed. It's seriously disturbed.
11: Okay, you convinced me. And now I'm thinking, oh my God, if only we had acted 10 years ago. If we'd only seen what was coming, perhaps we could have saved ourselves. <laughs> but again, Mike, um, that's taken from a movie. And it seems to me, based on not a whole lot of data, but a whole lot of exposure to my daughter Ida's TV viewing, which is a lot of Disney sitcoms, that film and TV are pretty much denuded of the vocal fry. I guess because the actresses are discouraged from
10: doing it, maybe because it's so vulgar and annoying yeah and you're right I mean the movies are movies and real life is of course different which brings us to study number two which is from just a few years ago it was conducted by a linguist at UC Berkeley named Ukuko Yuasa in her study there were about 30 subjects 10 young American men 10 young American women and 10 young native Japanese women they were all late teens to early 30s and most of them were students or graduate students at Berkeley. And what Uasa did was record each of them having a 10-minute conversation about food with another person who was not part of the study. She then analyzed a random 400-word chunk of every conversation, noting every word that contained creakiness. And she didn't just rely on her ear to determine whether or not there was creak in a word. She confirmed it by looking at both the waveform, as I described earlier, and at a spectrogram, which is something that measures the frequency of your voice. And it turns out that creakiness shows up in a spectrogram as a series of vertical striations. It's very distinct. What she found confirms, I think, what you've been hearing, Bob. American women exhibited creak twice as much as both American men And Japanese women. That's what I'm talking about. (laughs) And,
11: by the way, I watch a lot of foreign films. Now, of course, I've just made the point that films are perhaps not the best place to identify this phenomenon. But I've never encountered it in the voices of young German speakers or young French speakers or young... British English speakers. You know, I think this is something from, that is unique to the good old USA, at least for the moment.
10: Well, Yuasa concluded that there was some sort of what she called sociocultural motivation for American women to creak. And so to kind of get at what this sociocultural motivation might be, she did something else really interesting with these recorded conversations that she had. She took a particularly creaky snippet of a conversation from one of the American women and also a snippet from that same woman that was not at all creaky. And she played them both for a total of about 175 college students, both at Berkeley and at the University of Iowa, so two totally separate regions of the country. One of the questions they were asked was, what kind of impressions, such as personality traits or occupation, does the woman in Voice 2 project from her voice only as compared with the woman in voice one. Now, of course, they were the same woman, but voice two was the creaky voice, and voice one was not. About 60% of the students responded to that question with phrases like, and these are actual words and phrases that they used, professional, not yet a professional, but on her way there, graduate student, looking for her career, urban Some of them listed actual locations, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles.
11: Wait, 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 wait. This is for the creaky version of the woman's voice? Yeah, exactly. You mean there were positive associations among her demographic
10: for the creakosity? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll read to you what Akuko Yuasa concludes from this. She says that creaky voice is, quote, an increasingly common part of young American women's unconscious performance, projecting an image of contemporary urban, upwardly mobile women. Oh dear God! <laughs> I didn't think that would sit
11: well with you, Mike. It's horrifying. Uh, you know, I assumed that it would meet, lead to lower population growth, because on top of everything else, to my ear, it's so repulsive and yet it's deemed sophisticated by our next generation of leaders?
10: Yeah, it's deemed sophisticated by even students who don't necessarily themselves creak, but are listening to somebody else creak. And let me mention what I think is another really interesting point. The regular modal male voice is on average about an octave lower than the female voice. If for the average male voice, the frequency is, say, somewhere around 300 hertz, a female voice would average maybe around 600 hertz, give or take. These are rough numbers. It turns out, and this has been confirmed with spectrographs, that a creaky voice for both men and women occurs at the exact same frequency, a very low frequency between only about 30 and 40 hertz. Oh, my God. Well, that that actually is something. Because, till
11: this moment, I've been at a loss to imagine what could possibly prompt anybody to affect this kind of vocalization. But what you're suggesting is that because it lowers the pitch, it's a, a masculinizing of the higher pitch female voice for whatever perceived benefit.
10: Yeah, precisely. And, in fact, Barry Penick-Speck, who conducted the study that I mentioned earlier with movies... He says that, quote, it is possible to conjecture that what is happening is that women are converging with men as far as pitch is concerned, possibly in an attempt to be like them. As women are becoming more and more integrated in the workplace and are sharing more and more roles with men, it is conceivable that convergence in this area is a positive step for them. So he's conjecturing, and others have too, that women deem this creek a kind of authoritative, male-like sound, and they've adopted this as a way to kind of consciously or unconsciously sound more like men. Having said all of that, there are linguists who are skeptical. So let's assume that young American women creak far more often, twice as often, as young American men and twice as often as young Japanese women. Do they, though... Creek more often than they did 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago. We don't know that. There was nobody studying this in that way 50 years ago. I know it. I know it in my bones. I know it in my ear bones, in my anvil and my (laughs) stirrup. I know it. But it may be the case that you, Bob, and others of your ilk, suffer from something that we've talked about on this podcast before, which is the recency illusion, this mistaken impression that some phenomenon is more recent than it in fact is. You can hear, if you listen to old movies of Mae West, you can hear her creaking.
2: You know, I, I always did like a man in a uniform. And that one fits you grand. I should come up sometimes, see me. I'm home every evening.
7: Yeah, but I'm busy every evening.
2: Busy? So what are you trying to do, insult me? Oh, no, no, not at all. I'm just busy. That's all. You see, we're holding meetings in Jacobson's Hall every evening. Anytime you have a moment to spare, I'd be glad to have you drop in. You're more than welcome. I heard you. <laughs> but you ain't kidding me, any. You know I met your kind before. Watch up sometime, huh? Well, I. Don't be afraid. I won't tell. But uh... <laughs> come up, I'll tell your fortune. Ah, oh, you can be had. <laughs>
11: Uh, you know, one outlier piece of tape, no matter how cherished a part of American cultural history, does not put me off of my conclusions.
0: Today, there were actually two proud traditions that came together to inspire the creation of today's episode, you know, the, the topic I chose. Uh, you know, clearly, we demonstrated a long, proud tradition of oppressing women. Another proud tradition, though, is the tradition of privileged men in the media who feel the tiniest tiniest, ittiest, bittiest bit of oppression are shocked by it and then act like they've discovered something new like Christopher Columbus, uh, you know, discovered a continent with millions of people on it and then called it new. You know, so these members of the media, they get so excited about this new thing they've discovered that they feel like they want to tell the world, you know, hey, hey everyone, I, I just felt some oppression. Did you guys know about this? It turns out oppression is bad. Okay, well, two days ago, I had a listener write in attempting to police my speech patterns, and I thought to myself, well, wait a second. I'm a privileged dude in the media. I need to tell someone about this. Otherwise, they might not know about policing and oppression. So that was the inspiration for today's episode. Uh, you know, I just thought that it would be in better taste to highlight people who actually feel oppression and you know, the, the feeling of being policed on a regular basis. But it's sort of a funny story, so I'm going to do a members-only bonus episode about it to actually tell the story of what happened to me. That'll come out in the next couple of days. So members will be able to enjoy the full story, whether you're a member already, if you sign up you know, right now, or you sign up much later on, you'll be able to access the full archive of those bonus episodes. That is not where the fun ends, though. Uh, I have just decided in the last five minutes to make this into a contest with no prizes. Uh, I want to see if anyone can guess what problem this listener said he had with my voice. and I will give you a hint. It is not creaking, it is not vocal fry, it is something different, but there are a couple of different words he used, so either would be acceptable. Um, he used a couple of different words to describe what I am doing with my voice that is so irritating to him that he finds it distracting and he asked me to stop. So if you want to try to guess, Call in, I would love to hear these answers, uh, call in at 202-999-3991. If anyone gets it right, there will be no prizes, just accolades and bragging rights. So that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors for the show from bestoftheleft.com.
7: And it's a crying shame. We get so trained. We
3: can't see past our sad stories and wonder what we're missing. We can't see past
4: our sad stories and forget how to listen. We
3: can't see past.